If you recall back last week, we started in, in Luke chapter 6. We started out looking at this section of verses in Luke 6 with a, with a message that I titled last week, The Rest You Need. And so maybe you're thinking there's a little bit of a contradiction and that we're, today we're going to be talking about the restlessness that you need. And we'll hopefully explain the tension there as we get into the message here today. But, but we last week began exploring this topic of the Sabbath. And we looked in particular at five lessons on how we should honor the Lord's rest. So last week, the emphasis was on the first five verses of Luke chapter 6. And there we saw ultimately how Jesus provides the rest that we need. The rest that provides for us all of eternity. The the rest which causes us no longer to lean on our own works. No longer to strive by our own methods and our own efforts to get to God as if we could do that on our own. For Christ has come and he has fulfilled the obligations of the law. He has come as the sinless one to stand in our place. He has died facing the penalty that we as lawbreakers deserve to face. And ultimately when we see that God establishes what we call the Sabbath, the seventh day observance of rest, way back we saw the the first instance of this in Genesis chapter Two, where God finished all that he had made and he rested on the seventh day. He blessed that day. And then we saw ultimately how when, when Israel then receives the, the Ten Commandments as a nation there in Exodus chapter 20, we see that God points back to that initial rest, reminding individuals that, that as they had rested in his full provision for that original creation, He was now instantiating this day, the seventh day of the week, where individuals were to rest, looking forward to and hoping for a one-day rest that would bring a completeness to this idea of resting in God's work. And so that's what we talked about last week, and ultimately we saw that the fulfillment of that shadow, the fulfillment of that rest, is Christ. That's what we saw in Luke chapter 6, verse 5, where Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It's his. This all points to him. And this is wonderful news, my friends. We have rest in Jesus. We have rest for our souls. We have eternal rest. Rest which means we don't have to live under the burdens of a thousand obligations to keep the requirements of the law from God because God has shown us the way that we can find a rest in one who has fulfilled those obligations, one who has lived up to those holy standards. And true rest is found in Jesus. He lived a sinless life, fulfilled the obligations of the law for us, and then he died the death that we deserve to serve as a substitute, substitute for the penalty we deserve when we fall short of what God desires for us. But now God has raised Jesus from the dead to live and reign forevermore. And all who trust in him now have true rest. That's what we talked about last time. For Christ has stood in our place. Christ has satisfied God's wrath. That is an awesome work of God. That he would welcome us into his family to enjoy a forever sort of rest because of what Jesus has done. And that's an enduring rest. Every man, woman, boy, and girl needs that rest. That was the emphasis of last week's message, which began our look at how we should honor the Lord's rest. And hopefully you can see why 
I titled that message, The Rest That You Need. But as we get farther into Luke chapter 6, in particular as we start out today, we'll be in, starting in verse 6 of Luke 6. We're going to see that Jesus sets an example for us in how we should live in the midst of that rest that he has provided. And it's a message that all too many of us need to hear because I fear that far too often in the modern church, we give this impression that becoming a Christian or joining the church is the end game. That's the ultimate fulfilled objective that we have here on earth for individuals who are involved with our churches. Like, like they can just find this rest, this enduring Sabbath rest that Christ provides and then kick up their feet on the easy chair and cruise on until Christ calls them home. And that's just not the testimony that we see in Scripture. Are we living in a great rest? Yes. But does that mean that there is nothing for us to do in the time while we wait for Jesus? No. He's got a greater way for us to honor his rest. And our call to rest in Christ is not a call to live a lazy life until Christ comes again. I heard of a tourist who, in the mountains of North Carolina, found himself dining with, with an old mountaineer. It was a man who is really complaining and poor, and he's whining the whole time that they're sharing in this meal together. As a matter of fact, the first 15 minutes of the meal, this old mountaineer just, just spent his time complaining about how hard times were for he and his family, how they just were barely making it by. And the tourists had a little bit of an idea of, of how economics should be carried out and, and what this man had available to him. So, so he said to the mountaineer, listen, friend, he said, you ought to be able to make some money shipping green corn up to the northern market. He said, he said that, that's really something you ought to consider, you know, growing a little crop of corn and then sending that up. And well, the, the farmer said, well, I suppose that would be possible for some folks around here. The tour said, well, it's, it's possible for you. I mean, really, you should consider this. You have the land. You, you've even got the seed to do this sort of thing. Well, this old mountaineer said, it's no use. My wife is too lazy to do all that planting and plowing. <laughs> That's the way a lot of us think when it comes to Christianity. We know that there's a need. We know that the harvest is plentiful and that the laborers are few. We know that there are things that need to be addressed in the body of Christ, in the church. We know that our neighbors are dying and going to spend an eternity in hell apart from Christ. And yet we come with the impression that it sure is a shame that those other people aren't stepping up to do what needs to be done. Well, Jesus came to provide an enduring rest. But as he encountered individuals who needed that rest, he was restless to bring them into that rest. And we should be too, my friends. That's why I've titled today's message, The Restlessness You Need. As we join Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 6 today, we're going to find him dealing with yet another outcast in need. That's the recurring theme we find in the book of Luke. Jesus is constantly going to the individuals who are neglected, those who are seen as rejected, those who have found themselves at the bottom of society, unable to care for themselves, and these are the individuals that Jesus reaches out to. 
And he shows them a love that no one else is showing to them. He shows to them a grace which is far beyond what anything they've experienced before would be like. And that's why we titled this study through the Gospel of Luke, Outcasts, a gospel for the rejected. Because Jesus came for individuals who were neglected like the man we're going to see in this passage here today. Let's see how that exchange goes as we read God's Word together. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 6. Here we read, and if you will, let's stand together to honor the reading of God's Word. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath, so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forth. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? And looking around at them all, he said to him, the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. This is the end of God's word. Would you take a seat? And then grant me your attention as we dig into this text together. Let me quickly remind you where we left off last Lord's Day. That's when we began this look at five lessons on how we should honor the Lord's lesson. The first, the the Lord's rest, the first lesson on how we honor the Lord's rest was this. Don't confuse a blessing for a burden. Last week we saw how these religious members of Jewish society, the highest of the highest in the religious space, had had essentially put together 1,000 521 ways that an individual could violate the day of God's rest. And so we talked about how they probably were not experiencing a lot of rest in the midst of that. I mean, they were constantly having to worry about, am I violating these restrictions that individuals have put into place to tell me that if I want to live right for God, I've got to live this way. And it became a heavy burden for the people to carry. And the Pharisees, this this group of ultra-religious individuals in Jesus' day, there were about 3,000 of them in Israel, but they were kind of serving as the the Sabbath day police, the ones who would go around and find the ways which you were not keeping the law, and they would call you out on it because, buddy, you better believe you're not as good as I am. You should be keeping that law. You, You should be watching and observing the things that I'm doing because I've got it all together. That's essentially what the Pharisees were communicating, and they tried to call out Jesus' disciples as though they were sinning on the Sabbath day because as Jesus' disciples are walking through, they're picking some heads of grain. They're rubbing those heads of grain together in their hand to, bur- to break out the grain that is within there. And they're blowing the chaff away, eating that grain as they're walking on the Sabbath day. And the, the, the Pharisees, those ultra-religious individuals said, you can't do that sort of thing on the Sabbath. But Jesus goes on to show them that ultimately the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. That's what we talked about last week. The the Pharisees had it all backwards. 
They confused a blessing for a burden. The Sabbath was ultimately meant to be a blessing, a day of rest, a day of recuperating, a day of joy and celebrating the Lord's presence. But they turned it into a day of burden for others. The second lesson that we looked at was this. Don't mistake the shadow for the substance. And then we took this kind of deep dive into various scriptures in the Old and New Testaments to to show how ultimately... We have this picture in the scriptures that says that the the Sabbath is a shadow of things to come. And and the most important of those, the most clear of those passages, I think, that that draws that emphasis out is Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. That's where the Apostle Paul writes the following. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a sabbath day what does he say about these things in verse 17 things which are a mere shadow of what is to come but the substance belongs to christ so paul there in 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 that uh, passage in colossians speaks of the sabbath as the shadow of something that is yet to come the substance of that shadow is christ he's the one who brings rest for our very souls and that's why paul says or really, that's why Jesus says in the verse that's right before here in, 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 in Luke chapter 6, verse 5, that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the fulfillment of that shadow. So now we're caught up to our present text. And here's the third lesson on how we honor the Lord's rest. And it's this. Don't condemn what you can't defend. Don't condemn what you can't defend. Because in our passage today... Jesus steps into the synagogue on the Sabbath day in order to teach. It's not the first time we've seen Jesus do that. As a matter of fact, at the very beginning of his ministry, back in Luke chapter 4, we see that he came into the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath day in order to teach the people. Same sort of scheme. Jesus is doing what he would normally do in proclaiming the gospel through the avenue where individuals came to hear the word of God in that day in the synagogue. And if you'll remember back in Luke chapter 4, they ultimately did not like what he had to say. And so they tried to throw him off of a cliff, but he escaped right in their midst. Well, today he's not in Nazareth. He's probably in Capernaum. Luke really doesn't say specifically where he's at. He just says on another Sabbath day. So we know we're here. We're on a day that is set aside, a day that is holy, a day when those Pharisees are expecting that long list of obligations to be kept. And it's in a different context, not the same place where we saw his disciples picking the grain before perhaps they came right out of that grain field into the synagogue luke doesn't really say for us but we know it's another sabbath and and here is jesus in the midst of an assembly where he is not alone and and there are two particular groups of individuals or two, two particular categories i guess of individuals that you might describe that were there with him first there is this man who has a withered hand And that word withered ultimately means that somehow this man's hand had become paralyzed over time. It was his his right hand, we read, and and as this hand had become paralyzed, it had started to atrophy. It had started to kind of waste away, and, and it was withered, unusable. You can imagine how difficult that would make getting regular employment, how how difficult that would make just carrying out a normal life. It was it was a disability. Not a very severe disability like some of the things that Jesus dealt with, but but still a disability, a need for a man who's gathered in this congregation with Jesus on this day. 
and his, and his hand is, is withered. And there were also those persistent foes of Jesus, those ones who Jesus is dealing with in conflict after conflict here, especially in the latter verses of Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6, where we are now. But they're the scribes and the Pharisees. And Luke tells us in verse 7 why they were there. Is it because they want to gather in the synagogue to worship God? No, Luke says that they were watching Jesus closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath. Well, why were they watching Jesus closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath? Was it so they could rejoice and say, look at what God is doing? Look at the miraculous healing that he is bringing? No, they wanted him to heal so that they might accuse him, according to verse 7. Isn't that a lousy mentality? I mean, they think that, that healing on the Sabbath would be a sin. And they're so jealous of Jesus' ministry and the people who are following Jesus that they want Jesus to sin so that they can accuse him. They can, they can bring down this ministry that is taking away all the tension from themselves. They're rooting against a miracle worker and they're rooting against their fellow man who is in a time of need because they want all of the glory for themselves and friends i just i just want to say i hope that we who call christ our lord would never be found rooting against anyone out of a selfish jealousy but it certainly happens sometimes we have this hidden motive in the back of our minds that says i sure do hope that he messes this thing up i really i really do hope that she goofs up so that i can swoop in and i can save the day and i can get the attention i can get the glory i can get the position that i want that certainly seems to be the toxic culture of our political climate here in our day our political system as it currently is is so messed up I've begun to wonder if there's anything that Republicans won't do to Democrats or Democrats won't do to Republicans if it makes their side look better. It doesn't matter what the legislation might, it, might advance. Perhaps Democrats push a bill that would help the weak and the poor of society or the Republicans push a bill that will care for the unborn who likewise bear the very image of God. But in either case, individuals simply cannot step outside of their party's platform, their party lines, in order to consider how these things might benefit their brother who is in need, their fellow human who bears the image of God. Everyone seems so caught up in the glory of his or her political camp that they seldom work together for the betterment of all of humanity. But this happens in the office environment as well, doesn't it? Some of you have witnessed that, right? Some of you have experienced either end of that. I've seen it happen in families. I've seen it happen in marriages. One individual begins to root against another individual. They're watching every move. They're just waiting to call out an offense. They're ready to see someone fail. They're ready to swoop in and claim all the glory. That's a pharisaical sort of mindset. And Jesus knows that the Pharisees are all about their own glory rather than the glory of God and the good of their fellow man. Verse 8 says, but he, that is Jesus, he knew what they were thinking. Jesus isn't surprised by what the Pharisees are doing here. 
It's not like they're having some sort of hidden scheme. He can see into their very hearts. Just the way he can see into each of ours. He knows our motives. He knows what we're striving for. We might be able to put on a good facade in front of the others that we work with or the others we gather together and worship with, but Jesus sees our very thoughts. He knows what we are thinking. And Luke says Jesus ultimately decides to let these Pharisees and scribes defend themselves. He sets them up to explain why this man with a withered hand should not be healed on the Sabbath day. Luke says Jesus said to the man with a withered hand, get up and come forward. And then we read something of a bit of a display of faith in this man and that he actually does what Jesus tells him to do. Jesus tells him to get up and come forward and this man responds in faith and he comes and he stands at the beginning of, at, at the front of the sanctuary. And isn't that a great reminder? I, I, I see ties in what Jesus is saying here, right? Get up and come forward. It reminds me of what Jesus said to Lazarus in John chapter 11, right? Lazarus, come forth. There's an element of faith, an element of response, an element where Lazarus had to respond and say, ultimately, I'm going to step out by faith. I'm going to step into life. I'm going to step into victory. And my friends, I want to tell you, when you see Jeremy Parker laid in the grave, don't you fret over that because one day Jesus is going to be coming and saying, get up and come forth. He's coming again for his own. And I am clinging to the promise that he is able and willing to raise this old dead body from the grave once that day comes. And so I am rejoicing in the blessed hope that Jesus is coming again and that these words which Jesus says to this man here in Luke chapter 6 will be words which I will gladly hear because of the hope I have in him. And I hope that all of you know that hope as well. But once this man is standing at the front of the sanctuary, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says to those who are gathered here in this place, he says, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it? And essentially it's, here's your chance, Pharisees, right? Here's your chance to defend yourselves. If God is really against the healing of your brother on the Sabbath, then just say so. Back it up. Defend yourselves. And what response do we have from them in this text? Not a word. Not a word. Luke says that Jesus looked at them. Mark adds a little bit of extra shade in Mark chapter 3, verse 5. For he writes that as Jesus looked around, he was angry at the Pharisees and grieved over their hardness of heart. Here are the Pharisees. They're against divine healing. They want to see their fellow man suffer so that they can condemn him. Or they want to see Jesus heal so that they can condemn him. In either case, the focus seems to be on showing others that they are sinners and not worthy of God's kingdom the way that we, the Pharisees, are. And that sort of mentality, my friends, makes Jesus angry. You want to make Jesus angry? Try to keep people out of his kingdom. You may say, well, I've, I'd never do that. Well, truth be told, I'm afraid that we all do this a thousand times over. I'm afraid that Jeremy does this a thousand times over 
because we who know Christ have the message of life. But we refuse to violate our own Sabbath rest in order to get out of our comfort zones to share the gospel with our neighbor who is in need. In essence, we're saying you aren't worthy of me violating my day of rest. You aren't worthy of the greatest miracle that's ever been done. My preferences will win this day. You do that and I do that. And we violate the heart of the Sabbath rest when we do that. And Jesus doesn't wimp away from the truth that we need. He doesn't wimp away from the truth that the Pharisees need. He stood up for those who were oppressed. And I urge you, do not condemn what you cannot defend. That's the third lesson on how we should honor the Lord's rest. The fourth is this. Don't delay what you can address today. Don't delay what you can address today. Here on the day of Sabbath, God's commanded day of rest, Jesus encounters the man with the withered hand, right? Jesus is dealing with a man with a disability, but it's not like this man's going to die if Jesus doesn't heal him on this day, right? He's, He's just got a withered hand. He could sleep through the night with a withered hand, right? Jesus didn't have to heal this man today. I mean, Jesus could have sought him out the next day. Jesus could have found this guy when it wasn't a Sabbath day. And, and he could have ultimately healed the man anytime he wanted to, right? But Jesus has a lesson. He's got an intentionality of what he's doing. He's teaching something about the Sabbath here on this day. And Jesus ultimately says, this is not going to wait till Monday. Let's take care of this problem now. There's no need to wait until Sunday or Monday when the Sabbath is over. And in this time as jesus acts he's showing us that we should not delay what we can address today because the need my friends the need of our fellow man demands that we act now it demands that we have a heart of compassion we have a heart to bring healing we have a heart to bring rest now in the time when it's needed don't delay what you can address today We've received the fulfillment of God's rest. Others are still in need of that rest. Others are still trying to climb their own way to heaven. Others are still falling into pits of despair and feel like they'll never be able to get there. But we hold the good news of promise that Christ has done what is needed. We hold the very life that they need, the rest that they need. And so I want to urge you, my friends, to rest in the saving work of Christ, but also be restless in carrying out His mission here on the earth. In John chapter 5, verse 17, we find Jesus in the midst of another Sabbath day healing, another controversy with those Pharisees. And there the Master said, My Father is working until now, and I too am working. Jesus says, Look, I know it's the Sabbath, But there is a need, and I am working toward that need. I am working on this day. Do we have a great rest in Christ? Yes. But but has everyone who needs to find that rest found that rest? No. All around the world, people are dying without that rest. And we've been called to live on mission as ambassadors of the one who brings that perfect rest We must be restless in our work to carry out the mission of Christ. And there are individuals 
Well, maybe you can tell me, are there individuals in your neighborhood who have not given their life to Christ? Are there individuals in your family who have not entrusted all of their eternity to Him? Are there, are there folks at your workplace who have not clung to the life-giving message that Jesus saves? Then we have work to do, my friends. Let's stop playing like we're following Jesus when we invest our lives in entertaining ourselves and trying to make ourselves happy. Don't delay what you can address today when it comes to sharing the gospel with others. And I just want to tell you, you're never too old to be on mission for Christ. I had lunch this past week with a missions pastor out at Old Town Baptist in Winston-Salem. Just a good chance for us to get together and, and talk a little bit about how we could start aiming for better missions in the space of international work, reaching unreached people groups. And this pastor was sharing with me how in his church, they have adopted an unreached people group out in Myanmar. Okay, so as, they, as they're reaching out to Myanmar, there are individuals from the church who are going over there. They've got local individuals that are there that they're working with to try to equip them and encourage them to, to share the gospel. But he mentioned that, that he has this older couple that's in their 80s who will never be able to go to Myanmar. But he said, they are the most trusted individuals I have in being prayer partners for this people group. He said that the man has this room. Have, how many of you have seen the war room, the movie, the, the little prayer room where the lady kind of tapes up all the things that she's praying about? She said the man has a desk that's kind of like that in his house. And one day he went in to take a look at that desk, and he found that every picture of those people in Myanmar that he has sent the way of this gentleman has now been taped up such that that man is praying for these people every day. That's a heart for God's mission. That is a heart that has lived and will not rest in the comfort of who we are and what we're able to attain. That is a heart that is on mission for Christ. That is a heart that you can have, my friends. I don't care how young or old you may be. And I just want to say that when it comes to giving your heart and your life to Jesus, there are far too many of you who are delaying to address this very thing today. We get the idea, right? We get the idea that, that based on our past experiences, based how maybe you know, we've seen ourselves thrive through some, some pretty tough circumstances, that that's going to continue to happen. We're going to continue to have an innumerable number of, of tomorrows that we can just keep going the way we are. We'll, when, we, when we get ready, when we have the opportunity, when we feel like it's just right, you know, we'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise enough at that moment to receive Christ, to entrust our lives to Him. But that may not be the case. In 1997, a book titled Into Thin Air became a bestseller. And the, the, the author of that book, who was John Krakauer, recounted a disastrous 1996 expedition up Mount Everest that resulted in the deaths of eight climbers. Charlotte Fox was a part of that summit to the top of Mount Everest. She made it to the very top of the world, and she survived that harrowing journey on the way down. But then this one who had made it through these treacherous conditions... On the mountaintop, died at the age of 61 in May earlier this year. 
when she fell down the stairs of her Colorado home. And the shocking news caused one of her friends to say, it's just so wrong. How can you survive one of the most dangerous climbs on earth and then die on the stairs in your own house? And I'll tell you how. Because death is certain and death is unpredictable and there's never a convenient time to die. But all of us will face that destiny at some point if the Lord does not come first. All of us have an appointment with this foe which Christ has conquered through his resurrection. So when's the right time to give your life to Christ? Today. This is the appointed hour. This must be the day of rest you have no guarantees of tomorrow i don't care what level of escaping death you have seen in the past death will come for you and you must be ready don't delay what you can address today back in chapter 5 verses 37 to 38 jesus gave an important analogy that we had to skip over due to the lack of time two weeks ago he talked about putting new wine into old wine skins And how ultimately that would lead to a a, a bad situation because wineskins, ultimately when wine is placed in them, new wine is placed in, it's tied up. Those skins would be like the skin of a goat where the ends had been sewn up or tied up. And as the wine is poured into those wineskins, it then begins to ferment. The fermentation process releases gases, which pushes on those wineskins to the point where they are stretched out. So if you have old wineskins, you've got wineskins that have already been stretched out. Wineskins that have already kind of met the maximum of what they're able to expand with this wine inside of them. So if you put new wine in old wineskins, you tie it up. What ultimately happens, Jesus describes, is that those wineskins will break. And and all the valuable things that are inside will come flowing out. Because those old wineskins just are not capable of holding what the new thing demands. Now, Jesus wasn't just telling individuals how to make wine. He was talking them through this new covenant that God provides for us through Him, through His very presence, through His death, through His resurrection, through the hope we place in Him. Jesus was talking about the gospel that He came to offer to us to save us. And you can't just take that gospel. You can't just take that gospel and put it in the same old vessel, the same old life. You can't just keep your old manner of doing things and pour in Jesus without changing the very essence of who you are. And friend, if you say that you're a Christian, but nothing is different about your life from the time before you knew Jesus, then I would urge you to be very cautious. Be very cautious. You may well have put new wine into old wineskins. And Jesus says that that new wine will burst those old wineskins. And the new wine will just run out of that. You need a new life. And that sounds impossible. You're right, it is impossible by our own efforts. But when we yield our lives to Christ, He makes us new. He gives us new life. And so if you're living a life that is not all out given away to the command of the master who saves you, then you need to do some accounting. It's not good to put new wine in old wineskins. This was a message. Jesus shared this message. He was gathered there with Matthew at this celebration. As all these sinners were gathered around, fellow tax collectors, individuals who had walked a very wayward sort of life, Jesus tells 
about this not needing to put new wine in old wineskins because it's going to lead to destruction. That's the crowd that Jesus is speaking to, and that's the message that these lost and wandering sinners needed to hear. They couldn't just claim to be Christians and then keep on living a life of cheating others and robbing widows and lying and stealing. They needed new wineskins. They needed a new life on mission for the Savior. They needed to be willing vessels dedicated to Him. They needed to be living for a, a cause which was greater than themselves. And friends, I just want to tell you, you must be born again. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It was a hard thing for, for, for Nicodemus to fathom. It's a hard thing for you and I to fathom. But ultimately, we must be dead to the old person, alive to the new person. That old man must die. A new man must spring to life. And some of you look at your lives today and just say, there's, there's no way I can make that change. There's no way I can walk away from all that junk in my life and follow Jesus. You say, I'm, I'm too far gone. My testimony is too withered. Well, I want you to see that what happened to this man with a withered hand can happen for you as well. This, this man with a withered hand had Jesus speak to him. What did Jesus say to him? He said, stretch out your hand in Luke chapter 6, verse 10. And this man's hand was restored. And so, friends, hear me out on this. Jesus can straighten it out. I don't care what's wrong. I don't care what's leading you away from him. Jesus can straighten it out. Will you arise and follow his command by faith? Will you come to him with humility that says, Jesus, I need you to straighten this out in my life? Maybe it's some addiction. Maybe it's some problem in your marriage. Maybe it's some, some habit that you've fallen into. And as you look at the horizon, you say, man, there's just no way I could ever fix this sort of thing. I want to tell you, my friends, yield your life to Christ. Jesus can straighten it out. This man with a withered hand certainly sees that. Will you arise? Will you follow his command by faith? Not tomorrow. Not someday down the road. Christ calls you now. Will you heed his voice and give your life to him? That's the fourth lesson on how we should honor the Lord's rest. Don't delay what you can address today. The fifth is this. Don't miss what is precious for that which is preference. Don't miss that which is precious for that which is preference. So Jesus healed this man with a withered hand. What should the response of everybody who is gathered there have been? I mean, they should have been rejoicing, right? They had seen God's healing victory on display. Everyone should have been giving glory to God, but not those old Pharisees. Instead, in Luke chapter 6, verse 11, Luke records that they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. The Pharisees here had been in the very presence of a precious man, a bearer of God's image who had now been healed. They had been in the presence of an even more precious Savior. But because of their deep-seated preferences, they couldn't even celebrate this mighty act of God. Instead, they sought to put God's work to death so that their preferences could thrive. And that's a wrong-headed motion, my friends. Friends, we must be willing to yield our preferences to what God sees as precious. 
We must be willing to give up a little bit of consistency with what we see as the traditional norms of all the things that we do if that keeps the truth of God and advances the kingdom of God in the process. Our God is a missionary. He is still at work. He is still yearning for that which is precious. He is still yearning for you. He still wants you on mission with Him. And that means sometimes we're going to have to get out of our comfort zones. Sometimes we're going to have to do things a little bit differently than we've always done them. That means sometimes we must change what we're doing. But let us never sacrifice that which is precious for that which is preference. Don't waste your living for yourself. Let me say that again. Don't waste your living for yourself. I don't think any of us is going to come to the end of life. I don't think any of us is going to meet Christ face to face and say, I wish I'd have spent a little bit more time in the office working my way up that ladder. I wish I'd have spent a little bit more time out you know, doing the, 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 the big things that, that make the big dollars. I wish I'd have spent a little bit more time, you know, working on my acting career so that I could have made it to the top of the celebrity fame. I don't think any of us is going to meet Christ face to face and think about those things. I don't think any of us is going to get there and say, I wish I'd have spent a little bit more time watching Netflix so I could have seen the last five episodes of that show that I really wanted to see, right? Or I wish I'd have really emptied out my DVR instead of, you know, leaving all those things unwatched. I wish I'd have really scrolled to the bottom of that social media feed so I could have known every little bit of what was going on in everybody else's life, right? I don't think any of us is going to get before Christ and say, I wish I'd have spent time doing that. But there may very well be a time when we stand before him and think to ourselves, I wish I'd have spent more time sharing the gospel with that person that was so dear to me. And our God is on mission. Our God is still at work saving souls. Let us, my friends, be at work with him. Let us be passionate about sharing this good news. Every one of you is precious to the Almighty God. I don't care how greatly you may have been rejected by others. His love for you is undying. As we sang earlier, he is jealous for you. He wants you. Many of you watched with, with, with me as we watched the news this past summer about that, that group of boys who'd been playing soccer out in Thailand and kind of wandered off to this cave before these torrential floods came and flooded the cave and there was this massive rescue effort underway. Most of you remember that news report, right? And these soccer kids were there, stuck with their coach in this cave for a number of days but one key component of the rescue that delivered them out of that place was the delivery of oxygen tanks that were placed at various points of the route along the way. Ultimately, when, when they did escape, the, the, the dive which got them out of there was so long that individuals had to stop along the way to gather oxygen in order to replenish their supplies to be able to survive until they got out of the cave. But there was one death, one lone fatality in this whole effort. And it was not the kids who were there. It was not their coach. 
As it turns out, it was, a, it was a member of the Thai military, a Thai Navy SEAL, who was commissioned with staging oxygen canisters there along the route. He was providing the life supplies that would get others out of this place. And do you know why he died? As he was placing oxygen tanks, he ran out of oxygen. He ran out of the very thing which he had there available to himself. He apparently had what he needed, but he didn't use what he needed for himself. He gave it up for others. So that when the rescue operation began, these boys, their coach, and the other divers all had plenty of oxygen because someone had gone before them to make sure that they had everything that they needed. And friends, I just want to tell you, that's what we have in Christ. He has gone before us. He has given generously to meet our greatest need. It brought about his own death, but so great was his love that it didn't matter to him. So great was his desire that, that for you that he would not find rest for himself. He endured the cross. He bore the shame. He suffered and he shed his blood to set you free. He endured these things so that you would have his rest. And ultimately, it is Christ's blood that has set us free. The one who has gone before us, the one who has paved the way, the one who has done the work, this, my friends, is the hope of all eternity. This is the hope that I hope you are clinging to. And my prayer is that we as a church would be a church that is resting in Christ's promises for our eternal security, but restless in our mission to serve Him until He comes to fulfill and finish what He has promised. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for the rest that You have provided. We thank You for this life-giving rest. We thank You for Your boundless love which saw us in our time of need and went before us to provide what was needed. And Father, I just pray that you help each one of us to examine ourselves, examine the way that we're spending our lives. Help us to examine the way we're spending our time. What are we investing ourselves in, Lord? It feels like so often, Lord, we find ourselves chasing shadows. We find ourselves, Lord, out in social media trying to live up to the expectations of others when we really ought to be out making a real friend, spending life together. We find ourselves just chasing, Lord, these things which ultimately don't provide the fulfillment that we ought to have in living out your mission. So, Lord, help us not to live in the shadows. Help us to step into the reality that you call your church to do your work, that you are alive and well that your day of rest is still alive and that you are still working on mission and calling for partners to join you in this harvest. Oh Lord, may we have a heart of compassion that we would be restless in the mission which you've called us to until you grant the full and final 